Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 87, air date January 7th, 2016. Now, I had a little bit of training in this, fortunately. Let me just peel back. I don't know, I think Pallavi shared in 2007, I had come, come to India on a Fulbright to study Indian medicine. When I had finished up, I was actually appointed as the first outstanding scientist technologist of Indian origin for an organization called CSIR, which was attempting to do innovation, which, frankly, Godrej here is doing a thousand times better. But the opportunity with CSIR, if you know, was set up to actually spur Indian innovation by Nehru in the 1970s, which was actually to create technology that would help the Indian masses. But over the 70 years, CSIR, which, by the way, the president of India presides over, had devolved into a, an organization which was creating patents, many of them sort of useless, and papers. So the opportunity was I was asked to become the head of innovation for CSIR and additional secretary in the Indian government, beautiful bungalow in Delhi. My father-in-law at the time said, you'd be stupid not to take it. So I took the job. Within three months, I, uh, three to six months, I wrote a paper which talked about how to do innovation but as a scrappy entrepreneur, very similar to, I think, the way you guys are pursuing it, where you come up with an idea, you get a customer. Any entrepreneur knows ideas don't mean anything unless you have a customer, because now there's a big word called co-creation, which is cool, but entrepreneurs always have to do this. So you got funded about 50K to do that co-creative piece. If you found more customers, you got another 250, and then you wrote your business plan. We all know that business plans are frankly useless, except for the consultant who makes money writing the business plan. Right? A real business plan really emerges from getting a customer. What I found out in the midst of doing this was the organization really didn't want to do innovation. There were many smart people. I went across and visited about 1,500 scientists across 37 labs, really super smart people. The infrastructure had become, was always feudal, right? Feudal lords running these labs, and many of the lab directors were frankly uh, jealous of their subordinates. Very different than what I had faced as a 14-year-old boy working for Michelson. Michelson, 30 to 40, 50 years older, but they encouraged me. There wasn't this sort of hierarchy. So the net of it was, this. I wrote out a report. After about six months, I realized I had just been brought in as the MIT guy as sort of the icing, just to say there's innovation. And if you're a serious entrepreneur, you don't waste time, you don't care about positions. I wrote this report, it got released to the press, and this is what happened. Okay, so I was fired. My email was shut down under death threats. A bunch of articles came out in the New York Times. On, uh, what was it? October, uh, November 20, 2009, Star News wanted me to do a, a special and I was told if you did this interview, you'd be thrown in jail. And I, I remember looking at the situation saying, should I do this or not? Because I was deeply committed to innovation. I knew if I didn't say anything, who would? And I thought about my grandparents, these poor people who had nothing. And so I did the interview. Shortly thereafter, I was told I would be arrested. So I went up to the Nepal border. All true, by the way. Sounds like a movie, right? Crossed the Nepal border, went to Kathmandu, Qatar, and then came home. When I got home, the editor of Nature, everyone know Nature? Nature is probably the most eminent science magazine in the world. They had been observing CSIR for, for years. Why was no innovations coming out of it? So they asked me to write a commentary. 
So I wrote this article which says, Innovation Demands Freedom. And it talks about the fact that you cannot have innovation unless you have an environment of transparency, openness. It can't be in a feudal environment. What happened in 1947 was we did have a transfer of power. We never eliminated some of the feudal back end. That's why I say companies like Godred are really doing revolutionary work because you guys are breaking down those barriers. The article gets published. The PMO's office threatens the editor of Nature and the article disappears, okay? But it's out on the internet. But I had learned a lot from this. I learned how if you do say something important on social media, people can character assassinate you. So it was almost training for what occurred with the email controversy. Um, this is, by the way, a letter Bhargava wrote to the Prime Minister of India saying Shiva's report is honest. You know, uh, he had been there for 50 years at CSIR. And uh, it, was, it was a good, good letter. It sort of vindicated me. So anyway, by the way, that's a picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT when I was 17. Not only was I inventing, but I was an activist. There's a picture of me challenging the MIT president because MIT had millions of dollars of investments in South Africa. There's a picture of me protesting to make sure one of my friends was released from Sri Lanka. The point I'm telling you this is, you, it, you cannot be a real scientist or an innovator or an artist unless you're also committed to some level of truth. I, I don't believe, I don't understand how people divorce these things. But for me, these were intimately connected. That's actually the day I got my PhD, the US had invaded Iraq. And I was a student who pulled out U.S. out of Iraq. Half the audience booed me, and the other half gave me a standing ovation. So you also learned how to put up with, you, don't, you have to go to the point where you should not care what other people think. You have to do what's right. I'm sharing that because that's part and parcel of being an inventor. So when the email controversy took place, it was a very fascinating thing because you had to go into yourself. You see, when you're attacked that deeply, and your self-worth is attacked, you have to go inside yourself and you have to find out who am I? Because before it was easy for me to tell other people to fight. I made sure food service workers at MIT got better wages, more blacks got into MIT. But here, I had to separate myself from that 14-year-old boy. You following me? That's a very interesting journey because you actually have to go into yourself and find out do you really care about you and not in a self-promotional way but about the values that you stand up for. And that was a very tough journey, but I was able to do that. I was able to put on my hat as a social activist, but to protect this 14-year-old boy, this Indian boy who invented email. So, I, so we went and built the site called The Inventor of Email. We laid out the facts. We started doing work as I would do for anyone else who was under attack. And what was fascinating, I'm gonna read you this. So I had an amazing student at MIT Devin Sparks, who went through 400 documents. Because, you know, when you're being attacked, I can know how potentially probably the closest how women feel when they, when they get raped is because you start thinking you did something wrong. So I started thinking, wait a minute, am I being self-promotional? Am I saying something wrong? Right? One of my students found this amazing article. Remember, this guy David Crocker was part of Raytheon, the Raytheon gang. He was writing all this stuff. This is 2012. Now, Crocker had forgotten in December 1977, he had written another report. This was six months before I started inventing email. And this is December 1977. It says, at this time, no attempt is being made to emulate the full-scale inter-organizational mail system. The fact that the system is intended for users in various, various organizational contexts and by users of differing expertise makes it almost impossible to build such a system. 
that response all users needs. You see, these guys in the military didn't care about that secretary. They weren't solving a civilian problem. In fact, they had discounted the, the fact that that woman could ever use a computer. To them, it was impossible. But Crocker had forgotten he wrote, wrote this. When we put this out, uh, he got very scared. Chomsky, everyone know Noam Chomsky? Heard of Noam Chomsky? Chomsky's probably the modern Socrates of error. He's a professor emeritus at MIT. He's written, you know, he's a great linguist. So Chomsky came out and he said, look, the facts are indisputable. And Chomsky has a lot of weight on who invented email. So that was the email scenario. But you see, the facts on that were so clear, but I had to start peeling away. When you're, when you're someone who actually wants to find out what's going on, because remember, I'm committed to innovation and what drives creativity, I was really trying to figure out why this happened. What was really the underlying operating system? At the time, I was teaching a course at MIT, which was probably the most popular course. I know one of the things that you're trying to do at GoDreg is to cut across silos, right? You want to break down the laws, and design is a great way to do it. One of the courses I built was a course called Systems Visualization. MIT is also into silos, but there are some departments, like in the Media Lab, in the Engineering Systems Division, which are trying to break down silos. Silos are good if you want to solve one single problem, but if you want to build a system, it doesn't work. So this course, we would teach students how to take a very complex problem. So what you're, and they would draw it out from a systems diagram, then they would learn narrative storytelling, they would learn metaphors, and then they would learn data visualization. I can't, in, in the limited time, I'm not going to walk you through all that. At some point, I should probably come back and I can do a session on this. But this is an example of a student looking at how the stock market, the media industry, and the public sort of interconnect. So you find these very complex systems. This is another one a woman wanted to look at, should you be a vegetarian or not? So you pick a metaphor. So she used a metaphor of the cow's digestive cycle, all the different systems that interact, and then here's her final project, and students have to come up with a metaphor. The stakes are high, so we play on words. And you start looking at these graphics, and you start seeing complexity. Another student actually looked at the entire 9-11 disaster that took place, and he found some very interesting things, which I don't have time to show, but it's, it's very cool to watch it. At the same time, last year, um, Walter Isaacs, and everyone know of him? He used to be the editor of the Wall Street Journal, left liberal. He writes this interesting book called The Innovators. And he knows this issue with emails going on, okay? And it's called The Innovators of the Digital Revolution. And this is what you'll see here. So let me walk you through this. What do you see here? These are the people that Isaacson highlights as the people who, who led the digital revolution. So tell me what you see common among here. See the common pattern? Even a woman. This guy is Raytheon. This guy's a former head of Raytheon. What you see is these are all part of what's called the military industrial academic complex. Anyone heard this term? You've, you've heard it. Okay, so when uh, Eisenhower, who was a president of the United States, was exiting office, he gave a very, very famous speech and he warned the world and America that the most dangerous thing to progress and innovation would be the military industrial academic complex. This triangle, which is made up of the military, the Pentagon, you know, big universities, and big industry. And he said that this triangle lives for its own existence in terms of taking tax dollars and trying to essentially justify war, the war machine. And if you look at all these people, they're part of that triangle. But this 
That's me, by the way, when I was 14, 13, 14. But that kid cannot be part of that triangle. So when you look at the underlying operating system, there's been a narrative that the Western world is built to a large extent, saying that great innovations actually come out of war. That you must go kill people, and that's a driving force for great innovations. And by the way, you should be happy because you just got that scratch-resistant sun visor, and you got GPS, and you got Velcro. So this is the argument that's made. And that narrative drives most of innovation. So if you look at the modern healthcare system, Florence Nightingale, by the way, was not a nurse. She was actually the, the creator of the modern healthcare system. It actually comes out of that triangle because it was, it was designed to put a soldier back on the field, right? So we created surgery, we created antibiotic steroids. And then the secondary effect of that was to use the modern healthcare system for, for normal healthcare. And the tertiary part of that was to put down any other type of healthcare system. And I don't mean this as a conspiracy theory, this is just the way that process of innovation works. You take the entire process of the Haber process that was created for trinitrotoluene, explosives. After World War I ended, we reused nitrogen fixation for fertilizer. And then the tertiary aspect of that was to put down other forms of indigenous innovation, which didn't require fertilizer. By the way, the Indus Valley survived for thousands of years without using chemical pesticides or fertilizers. But that's what this triangle is about. And I had really, per forget the invention of email, what I had really hit upon was something very deep, and that's where that vitriol comes from. It's not just about the fact I invented email, it's a fact that I dared to challenge the fact that email was created outside of that triangle. You see, because when I was inside that, I was on the front page of MIT three times. Three times. Technology review, front page of MIT. But when I said email was done before that, in a small, poor African-American place, I had perturbed something. But when you really look at this situation, innovation occurred in a very different ecosystem. It was a community, like I think you're trying to create here, my parents, public school teacher who challenged the administration so that kid could travel, a mentor who didn't see me like CSIR folks did as lesser because I was 14, I was treated as an equal. In that ecosystem is where email got created. Openness, transparency, democracy. That's where innovation comes out of. It doesn't come out of big money, corporations. In fact, my story is not that different than, do you know who invented TV? Philo Farnsworth, a 14-year-old farm boy working in a, in a small town called Franklin, Idaho. He saw the way the cows plowed the field in a Z pattern. He created the raster tubes. N not only did he invent TV, he patented it, and RCA and Sarnoff shut him down for nearly 19 years. He died an alcoholic. I think 60 years later, now there's a statue of him. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, that innovation can occur anytime, any place, by anybody. And it's not dependent on money, per se. It's dependent on the kind of community you're trying to build here. Within that community is where innovation, I was fortunate to have that as a 14-year-old boy. Now, things like this, fortunately, we have good people in the media or emerging people. There's a great story. I don't know if you saw this film, Inside Job. Matt Damon is the, you've seen it. So if you haven't, if you, you should pick it up. Charles Ferguson actually got his PhD at MIT. He created Vermeer and then he went and became a filmmaker and won an Academy Award for this. But this film talks about the collapse of 2009. It took place when this guy, 
wrote this article saying, Financial Stability in Iceland, a beautiful, well-written academic piece of paper. Well, two months after that, the entire Icelandic economy collapsed. Turns out this guy's a professor of economics at Columbia. Never did he talk about the fact that he had received a huge sum of money from the Icelandic Board of Governors. You see, that's what I'm talking about, very sophisticated form of corruption. We know for years, scientists told us smoking was good for us for 50 years. Actual articles were published. Um, this came out called the Golden Holocaust, which exposes how the collusion between science and industry took place. My point is that, that if you even go back to Galileo, clearly there's evidence that the sun is the center of the solar system. The Catholic Church persecuted him. I think in only 1992 did they say they were sorry. Okay? So we got to really rethink who is a real source of innovation? Who's creating these narratives? Who's anointing who's an innovator and who isn't? And we need to fight against that. And that gets me to this larger story that I want to talk about, 